Welcome to Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is the ninth episode of the podcast, From the Capitol to the Patent Office, The Life and Times of Dr. William Thornton. In the spring of 1792, the government of President George Washington had begun requesting designs for the future United States Capitol. The intention was to create a structure that would embody the grand ideals of the new nation and serve as a defining landmark in a new federal city that was to rise on the banks of the Potomac River. President Washington envisioned a city that would play a fundamental role in the survival of the Union, with the Capitol building serving as the city's political anchor, a physical counterpart to the Constitution and a kind of temple to the secular religion of Republican government. The design competition for the Capitol, however, presented a host of problems. Then a late entry arrived by a Dr. William Thornton. The cordial Thornton, quote, full of hope and of a cheerful temper, as his wife Anna Maria describes him, was a nonconformist by temperament, a man who favored lace-trimmed garments that contradicted his stern Quaker origins. However, Thornton had no formal training in architecture. He took his inspiration largely from examples in books and in real life. Despite this, Thornton's design won the contest and he became the first architect of the Capitol. Thornton's story, hidden history that has remained long forgotten, is the story of an amateur architect who would go on to design one of the most recognizable buildings in American history and a young nation intent on establishing a capital city worthy of a constitutional republic. on the island of Tortola, the biggest of the four main islands of the British Virgin Islands. Born into a Quaker community, he was the son of a prosperous owner of a sugar plantation. At the age of five, William was sent to England to be educated, which was the custom of the time for the sons of wealthy men. There he would be raised in and near the ancient castle town of Lancaster by his father's Quaker relatives. As was the Quaker way, William was to be trained for a useful life, and so despite his wealth, he became the apprentice of a practical physician and apothecary from 1777 to 1781. The earliest of William's known writings, a journal he began during his apprenticeship, had almost as many entries for drawings and sketchings as it did on notes pertaining to the medical field. His subjects were almost always floral or fauna, but he also did portraits, landscapes, historical scenes, and studies of machinery. After his apprenticeship ended in 1781, William enrolled at the University of Edinburgh, where he studied medicine. In 1783, William went to London to continue his medical studies. Characteristically, he also found time to attend lectures at the Royal Academy of Arts. The following year, he received his medical degree from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. William decided to spend some time in Paris before returning to the British Virgin Islands in 1786. It was there that William was reunited with his mother, Dorcas, for the first time since he was a boy. By the fall of 1787, William had migrated to the United States and had settled briefly in New York before moving on to Philadelphia. William had originally spoke of just visiting the United States, but on January 7, 1788, William took an oath of fidelity to the state of Delaware. Since Delaware was a member of the Union, this oath assured him full American citizenship. 
1789, after briefly practicing medicine and becoming heavily involved with John Fitch's early attempts to develop a steamboat, William ended up designing Philadelphia's new library hall. It was also during this time that William, now a citizen of America and still looking for that special wife, began courting Anna Maria Brodeux. He married her on October 3, 1790, and was disowned by the Quaker community for not seeking their approval. At the time, Anna was 16 years old and William was 31, but it was a great match for the older gentleman. Anna was of English birth, a person of culture, and she possessed a considerable amount of artistic ability. Shortly after their marriage, William and Anna traveled to Tortola, where they remained until 1792. In accordance with the Residence Act passed by Congress in 1790, President George Washington in 1791 selected the area that is now the District of Columbia from land ceded by Maryland. He also selected three commissioners to survey the site and oversee the design and construction of the capital city and its government buildings. The commissioners, in turn, hired the French engineer Pierre-Charles L'Elfant to plan the new city of Washington. He located the capital at the elevated east end of the mall on the brow of what was then called Jenkins Hill. The site was, in Elephant's words, quote, a pedestal waiting for a monument. Elephant was expected to design the U.S. Capitol building and to supervise its construction. However, he refused to produce any drawings for the building and felt he was above the commissioner's authority, and so he was dismissed in 1792. In March of that year, the commissioners announced a competition, suggested by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, that would award $500 and a city lot to whoever produced a winning design for the U.S. Capitol building by mid-July. None of the 17 plans submitted, however, were wholly satisfactory. In October 1792, a letter arrived from Dr. William Thornton, requesting an opportunity to present a plan even though the competition had closed. The commissioners granted this request. The following month, November 1792, Thornton arrived in Philadelphia. Unsatisfied with the design he had, Thornton started over and in January 1793, his still unfinished designs were submitted to the president. Thornton's plan depicted a building composed of three sections. The central section, which was topped by a low dome, was to be flanked on the north and south by two rectangular wings, one for the Senate and one for the House of Representatives. President Washington commended the plan for its, quote, grandeur, simplicity, and convenience. And Jefferson wrote, quote, Thornton's plan had captivated the eyes and judgment of all. Thornton had had only limited architectural experience, but had observed and sketched buildings in Europe, and he was always fond of reviewing different architectural plans as they became available on both sides of the Atlantic. On April 5, 1793, Thornton's designs for the U.S. Capitol were accepted by the commissioners, President Washington gave his formal approval on July 25th. President Washington laid the cornerstone of the U.S. Capitol in the building's southeast corner on September 18, 1793, with Masonic ceremonies. Work progressed under the direction of three architects in succession, and the construction was a laborious and time-consuming process. However, by 1800, the U.S. Capitol would be complete.
By the end of 1793, Thornton, along with his wife and his mother-in-law, had moved to Georgetown from Philadelphia. Clearly hoping to be a force in the new capital, he nevertheless declined an offer to be the superintendent for the construction of the capital building itself. Why he declined is not clear, but from September 1794 to July 1802, Thornton served as the fifth commissioner of the federal city. The duties of this job were basically to help survey and define the territory of the federal city and to purchase land for development and oversee the construction of all federal buildings. When eminent Virginia planter, Colonel John Taylor III, decided to have a new home built, he briefly considered Philadelphia as a viable location before he decided on the primitive wilds of the new federal city, Washington, D.C. On April 19, 1797, Taylor purchased a lot at the corner of New York Avenue and 18th Street Northwest. The house, which would later be known as the Octagon House, was a conspicuous statement of support for the newly established capital city from one of Virginia's most prominent families. So it only feels right that Dr. William Thornton, the first architect of the capital, designed the house and gave the growing federal city a grand home to help build Washington's reputation. On April 19, 1799, Thornton wrote to George Washington, quote, Mr. J. Taylor of Virginia has contracted to build a house in the city near the President's Square of $13,000 value. Completed in 1801, the Octagon House would go on to serve an important role in the United States history. When the British later burned the White House in 1814, President Madison and his family lived in the Octagon for six months as the city rebuilt. It was here that President Madison signed the Treaty of Ghent in February 1815, formally ending the War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States. The Octagon House is one of only five houses to serve as the presidential residence in the history of the United States of America, and one of only three, along with the White House and Blair House, that still stand. In 1805, Thomas and Martha Park Custis Peter purchased Tudor Place. The Peters then asked their friend, the self-taught architect Dr. William Thornton, to design a home for the property. A little side note about Martha Custis and the property. Martha was born at Mount Vernon, the granddaughter of Martha Washington and step-granddaughter of George Washington. Tudor Place has close ties to the legacy of America's first, first family, and is the only property in the District of Columbia connected to George and Martha Washington. In his plans for Tudor Place, Thorne expressed Palladio's forms in a distinctly federal American style, melding French-influenced Romantic classicism with traditional English forms. The most architectural significant feature is the domed, marble-floored temple portico. Thornton's circular structure extends into the house itself with curved wall-to-wall wall-to-floor ceiling windows serving as a transition between interior spaces and the exterior sprawling south lawn. The exterior of the brick house was clad in stucco, scored to resemble blocks of finished stone, a common federal period technique. Once the designs for the mansion were done, Tudor Place would go on to be completed in 1815. Around 8 p.m. on the evening of August 24, 1814, 
British troops descended on Washington, D.C. to set fire to much of the city. A year before, American troops had burned and looted the Canadian capital at York, which is today known as Toronto. The nation was in the midst of war. Word of the approaching forces sent most of the population fleeing, leaving the capital vulnerable. Meeting little to no resistance, British troops set fire to the U.S. Capitol, the President's Mansion, known today as the White House, and other local landmarks. The ensuing fire reduced all but one of the capital city's major public buildings to smoking rubble, and only a torrential rainstorm saved the capital from complete destruction. While Washington, D.C. burned, and President Madison and his entourage hid in the small town of Brookville, Maryland, William Thornton was pleading with the British not to burn down the first U.S. patent office. Housed within the Blagett's Hotel at the time, the patent office had only been in existence since 1802, when President Jefferson appointed Thornton the first superintendent of the patent office. His pay was $1,400 a year, and he would be responsible for issuing patents, work that had previously been left to the secretaries of state and war, as well as the attorney general. Although Thornton and his workers managed to cart away boxes of papers and books to the Thornton farm in Bethesda before the British arrived, there were still hundreds of models left in the patent office that were simply too bulky to be moved safely in time. As a British officer set a cannon into position to be fired at the Blaguette's hotel, legend has it that 55-year-old Thornton dashed in front of the cannon and demanded, quote, Are you an Englishman or goths and vandals? This is the patent office, the repository of the inventive genius of America, in which the whole civilized world is concerned. Would you destroy it? If so, fire away and let the charge pass through my body. When the smoke cleared from that dreadful attack on our nation's capital, the patent office was the only government building that was left untouched. The burning of Washington was the only time since the American Revolutionary War that a foreign power had captured and occupied the capital of the United States. The occupation of Washington lasted for roughly 26 hours. Quote, died at his residence in F Street after a tedious confinement by malady which he bore with unruffled resignation, the high gifted Dr. William Thornton one of the oldest and most respectable inhabitants of this city, and who, for many years past, presided at the head of the patent office in the Department of State. Dr. William Thornton died on March 28, 1828, in Washington, D.C. Information about Thornton's fatal final illness rests largely on the reports of his wife. Thornton sought help from physicians outside of Washington and was prescribed medicines that included opium, warm water, bleeding, etc., all of these failed. The long letter from one doctor offers little clear insight into the cause of death. Dr. Thornton was assigned an honored place in the Congressional Cemetery, buried under a tombstone designed by his architectural competitor, Benjamin Latrobe. Mrs. Thornton summarized the view of why her husband was not more appreciated as she wrote, quote, his views were too extended, his plans too vast to be embraced by men generally. Thornton certainly has some vast plans during his lifetime, and we will end this episode with an interesting little tale about William Thornton and George Washington that shows you how vast those plans could be.
20 years after George Washington's death in 1799, Thornton wrote that when the former president was suffering through his final illness, a family member invited Thornton to Mount Vernon to see if he could help. Thornton left for the estate in the, quote, fullest confidence of being able to relieve him by tracheotomy. He was shocked to discover that Washington had died before his arrival and was now, quote, laid out a stiffened corpse. My feelings at that moment I cannot express. I was overwhelmed with the loss of the best friend I had on earth. But Thornton had a backup plan. Quote, the weather was very cold and Washington remained in a frozen state for several days. I proposed to attempt his restoration in the following manner. First to thaw him in cold water, then to lay him in blankets, and by degrees and by friction to give him warmth, and to put into activity the minute blood vessels, at the same time to open a passage to the lungs by a trachea, and to inflate them with air, to produce an artificial respiration, and to transfuse blood into him from a lamb. If these means had been res resorted to, and had failed all that could be done with had been done, but I was not second in this proposal, for it was deemed unavailing. I reasoned thus. He died by the loss of blood and the want of air. Restore these, no doubt in my mind that his restoration was possible. Twenty years later, Thorian still seemed a little annoyed that people questioned his idea, wondering, quote, whether if it were possible, it would be right to attempt to recall to life one who had departed full of honor and renown, free from the frailties of age, in the full enjoyment of every faculty, and prepared for eternity. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Each episode of Hidden History will explore an honorable story that has been buried in the sands of time and deserves to be told. Pictures, newspaper clippings, and links to external articles relating to a particular episode will be available on our website. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez, and this has been Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time.